Hello and welcome to The Stack. This week's show is a special from the World News Media Congress that happened in Saragossa late in September. Monaco's Sophie Monaghan Coombs was there and reports back. From Midori Housing, London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And this week will be, indeed, print industry analysis, because our Sophie Monahan Coombs attended the World News Media Congress for The Stack, and she's here with me in the studio to tell me more about it. Sophie, you've attended a very important event that I'm sure all of our Stack listeners uh, will be very curious to find out more. Can you introduce the event for us? Yeah, of course. So the World News Media Congress this year took place in Zaragoza in Spain. And yeah, for anyone who's interested in media, it's a really significant event. It brings together editors and kind of leaders from media organizations from around the world. So I think there were more than 70 countries represented and there was really sort of everything there. There was a lot about print media, but there was loads about digital AI, kind of the role of blockchain and the future of media. There were also some really interesting conversations about gender and what it's like rising to the top as a female editor and and the kind of challenges involved in that. So that was really interesting to hear about. So yeah, it was really everything and anything. I, I, w- I would have loved to go there. And, and, and Sophie, one interesting thing here that we were discussing, uh, the topic of collaboration came up quite a lot. And it's quite interesting because, you know, there, there are people from all over the world, as you say. So tell me more, how did this collaboration actually work at the event and in the d- discussions you've been to? Yeah, I I thought it was really interesting because journalism is often thought of as a competitive industry and, you know, you're obviously trying to get your stories out before other people do and, you know, turn more eyes towards your work. But it was really interesting to hear these examples of collaboration from everywhere. So one of them that I was particularly kind of inspired by was this group of family media organisations from around Spain And they're all very small and don't have too many resources and kind of really felt like they were fighting a losing battle. And they decided to club together and they've made this big organization. They're all working together and sharing digital skills and resources. And by doing that, they're actually doing really well and they're growing quite a lot. That was one really interesting example. Then one of the interviews I think your listeners are going to hear with Faith Zaba from a publication in Zimbabwe was really interesting to talk to. And she was talking about how they've collaborated with kind of neighboring countries and other countries in Africa, kind of sharing, for example, working quite a lot with organizations in Kenya around the Kenyan election and resharing their work. But also she was saying that they've been working with other media organizations in Romania. So, you know, yeah, really kind of global mix. And I I thought it was really interesting. And were the main kind of uh, topics of heated discussions, perhaps, is print versus digital still a thing? Because, you know, which side I'm, I'm, I'm joking, of course, I have nothing against digital, but, but tell us if it's still going on. And were people kind of optimistic about the industry as well? I would, I would love to know that. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, it's just become the biggest debate. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of digital media and digital organizations who were represented there. 
And, you know, I also am a big believer in print. I felt a little bit disheartened at first, but then I was really cheered up to hear Pepa Bueno, who's the editor-in-chief of El País in Spain. She, in her talk, she was saying how they do loads of stuff online, but for her, what goes out on the conveyor belt, the picture that you've chosen and the headline and all of that is what's going to stick in people's mind. And that is still the most important kind of front-facing thing they're doing. Those editorial decisions about what you commit to print is really, really important. So that really, yeah, was a nice thing to hear for people who do believe in print media. And I think there's a lot to say on both sides. But in general, I felt quite optimistic. And what about the idea, again, a topic that comes quite often about the 24-hour news, this white noise that we heard. Were there any mentions of that as well? Yeah, definitely. And obviously, this event was happening within the context of the conflict in Ukraine. And I think people are really aware of how they need to keep people's interest in it. It's important for the war effort, as well as being informed on a kind of personal level. So I think that there was a lot of conversation about how to kind of cut through noise. One person I spoke to who was kind of had a particularly sort of unique perspective on this is Natalia Entilava from Coda Story. And she was saying how people need to think a little bit more in the longer term about how they're coming out with news stories. Other people I heard talking about making sure that they were only publishing stories once they were ready. And actually, it's not always the case that you should put something out as soon as possible. Sometimes you need to let a story breathe and develop and then put it out. And I think that's something about cutting through the noise, stopping people's fatigue. There was also a lot of conversation around how Actually, people who consume news are really interested in learning the context. So, for example, with Ukraine, learning about the Soviet Union, learning about the kind of historical precedent and the historical context within which this is happening. So I think it's about creating that bigger, all-round picture that's, that's important. Sophie, thank you so much because you've done a few interviews for the stack as well, which is great. And you just mentioned there Natalia and Telava. We're going to play the interview you did with her, but can you please introduce this interview for us? Yes, of course. So Natalia Antilava is a wonderful journalist. She's an award-winning journalist and the co-founder of Code Story, which is a very interesting news platform. As I mentioned, they're really interested in giving out the bigger picture. They don't do breaking news. They've got quite a kind of strict way of working and she was particularly interesting on things like cutting through noise and the 24-hour cycle. But the other thing I would say to listen out in her interview as well is she has done a lot of work on disinformation and she has a really interesting and a very unique perspective on disinformation and the idea of combating disinformation. So, yeah, I hope your listeners enjoy because she was a really fascinating speaker. Thank you, Sophie, and let's have a listen. What is Coda Story? So Coda Story is a thematic newsroom that covers roots of global crisis. And we really set out with a mission and a challenge of bringing context and continuity to coverage of things that are in the headlines, right? Because we all know that people parachute in and out of stories and news generally lives as kind of like incremental pieces of information on our timelines. So we wanted to figure out how do you 
connect the dots between seemingly unconnected events? How do you build context and continuity? And how do you build a newsroom that works around context and continuity? So there are probably more solutions than the one that we came up with. But what we came up with was creating a thematic newsroom that basically looks at these overarching big global themes like disinformation, authoritarian technology, war on science, rewriting of history. You know, these are these things that we see as global crisis that really make up the connective tissue of the problems that all share globally. So you are working in a different way because it's thematic. Could you talk a little bit about the kind of time frames that you tend to be working with in your newsroom? Yeah, so we kind of are more slaves to why and how rather than when and what. I think news is being covered well, sometimes too well. Sometimes I think, you know, there's there's sometimes not enough news to fill 24 hours, but news industry still does, just generating a lot of noise. So we try to make sure that we don't contribute to the noise, but instead like really look at things that move the conversation on and help shape narratives and challenge them and complicate them. So for someone who comes from the news industry, myself, sometimes it's really hard not to be jumping on stories, but that's exactly what we're trying to do. I think the war in Ukraine is a really good example. So obviously we had lots of brainstorms and editorial meetings about how we actually cover the war in Ukraine and what and where, like what niche it is that we fill. And We all felt that the war itself was being covered and is still to this day covered pretty well. So what we're really looking at is the global ripple effect of that war and how it's reverberating across the world. So the timeline, it's a lot slower. We don't do breaking news. We don't do breaking news and we don't do opinion. What we try to do are those bigger, not necessarily sometimes longer. I mean, some of these pieces are, you know, pretty short and we work in all sorts of different formats, but basically pieces that have have longer shelf life and that reflect more deeply on kind of underlying challenges. And you mentioned the conflict in Ukraine and kind of having to think about how you responded to that. And I know you've done a lot of work on disinformation and maybe you could just talk a little bit more about what that work has looked like and how you see your role within a world that is full of these kind of issues. Yeah, so disinformation is actually one of our overarching themes. It's one of these like big crises that we cover, right? But the way we do it, the way we do everything else, we split disinformation into what we call currents, right? Into these beats that run through it, into the themes that run through it in order to understand it. Because I think one of the traps of disinformation for journalists has been the fact that everyone's kind of jumping on it. It's become a little bit of an industry. We're all like very obsessed with fake news. But what we're not doing enough of is treating disinformation as a story that it is. You know, there is a lot of talk at every journalist conference about how we should be combating disinformation. We never talk about combating global warming. We never talk about combating Russian invasion of Ukraine. You know, why should we be combating disinformation? Like we should be covering it because it's a story. It's a story that has has victims and perpetrators, it has root causes, it has some underlying issues. And these are things that we need to be bringing to the surface and illuminating and thinking about and so on. So a lot of our disinformation coverage is exactly that rather than just picking on things that have been said and saying, oh, this is fake news. And the truth is this, we try to be much more proactive rather than reactive on our coverage. We try to tell stories that explain the why and how. 
within that, I guess, you know, we're at this big conference about the media and the future of the media. And as an organisation that's forward-facing, I wonder how you feel about the hope for, for journalism and the way it's, it's changing and the role of your organisation within that. You know, I think increasingly I see the news industry, kind of the hardcore news industry, as it's like a subset of the journalism industry in general. And I think it's a good thing. I think news is many ways a really big part of that information climate that we are part of. It's part of the information climate that has been kind of bad for our societies, simply because there isn't enough news to fill 24 hours. And when we still fill 24 hours with news, we end up generating a lot of noise. And when we generate a lot of noise, you know, we create this apathy in our listeners and our readers. And personally, I think noise is the new censorship. Like it's really hard to get through that wall of censorship. So I think the journalism is an industry we have an enormous responsibility not to be contributing to the noise but contributing to the conversation and I'm very glad to see that there is an increasing number of newsrooms that are doing just that I'm a big believer in non-profit journalism because I think so many business models failed and I think you know the non-profit model is the one obviously biased because that's what we are but I think you know you look at the information kind of journalism landscape in the United States or in parts of Europe where non-profit is being developed quite aggressively and you know you realize that there's just allows for so much good journalism I'm quite optimistic I'm pretty pessimistic about the world I'm quite optimistic about the future of journalism I don't think news is necessarily should be part of it the way it is now and I think there's a lot of rethinking that needs to be done on how the news industry contributes to how we understand the world around us thank you very much Natalia And we'll move on to Sophie's second interview. Although the European Broadcasting Union is best known for the Eurovision Song Contest, their work also plays an integral role in fostering healthy public service media across the continent. Deputy Media Director and Head of News, Liz Corbyn, caught up with Monaco's Sophie Monaghan Coombs at the Congress. Here she is explaining the organization in her own words. The European Broadcasting Union is an organisation, a member organisation of all of the public service broadcasters across Europe. We're best known for the Eurovision Song Contest, but we do a huge amount beyond that. And Eurovision News, which is what I look after, includes sharing news content across all of those broadcasters and providing news broadcast services to all of our members. So you're focusing on public service media and across Europe. Could you just give me a sense of the kind of scope of that and how it differs between different regions and kind of what all of that encompasses? I think diversity is the word to um, use to describe all of our different members. You know, at one end, we have the huge members like the BBC in the UK and Rai in Italy and France Television. But then we have countries where they have much smaller public service broadcasters so we really deal with the whole range of budgets of political situations of size of output so we really cover the full range and that makes our job fascinating but also a real challenge to try and make sure that we're providing relevant services to all of our members and to make sure that we're useful to all of them. And you touched then on 
the different political contexts that some of your members might be working from. How do you see press freedom and the changing political contexts in Europe at the moment? How are they changing your work? I think it's becoming increasingly important. We have always been big on defending press freedom, media freedom, and it's becoming harder in some places, places where you would never previously have expected to have to be dealing with these pressures, you're now starting to have to deal with them. And that's really worrying. And one of the things that we repeat consistently is that if you want a strong democracy then you have to have a strong public service broadcaster the two things go hand in hand where there are strong democracies the public service broadcaster tends to be better invested in better trusted and more used by the audiences and where democracy is lower you'll find that the public service broadcaster is less relevant less well funded less well supported and you talk then about kind of creating the conditions in which that public service broadcaster can flourish and and do their job to the best of their ability what do you think they should be doing in order to kind of create that sense of importance around what they're doing and the link between democracy and public service media public service media has an absolute duty to be there for everybody in the population so that's the that's the one thing if you say that, that their responsibility is is to be relevant and providing content information entertainment etc to everyone. That universality is a really key point. And so we work with all of our members to support them in their efforts to do that. So when we're talking about digital transformation, that's a huge issue for all journalists um, across the board, but not least with public service media. So being relevant and being there and reaching all audiences, underserved or badly served audiences, and providing that content reliable, trustworthy, top quality content in a way that those audiences want to receive it is a really strong part of what the duty is for public service media. And it's only through the relevance to the population that you're doing your duty in terms of strengthening democracy and strengthening society. And just finally, you are obviously working across Europe and I wonder how your work has changed as a European Broadcasting Union, but also how you might have rethought about the role of public service media in Europe since the conflict started in Ukraine, particularly now that it's become this protracted war. How you're supporting your members and also what what the role of of the members are within that? There's two questions there, really. We have to remember, and often we forget in Europe, that the public service media system that Europe has is the absolute envy of the world. Everywhere else that doesn't have this system wishes that they had it. And I think it's really worth reminding ourselves of that when perhaps there are issues with a particular public service broadcaster or and just not to forget the enormous value that they bring to society, to democracy. We have one of our members of the EBU is our Ukrainian member, UAPBC, and they have been doing an extraordinary job keeping on air, broadcasting news, entertainment, just keeping going throughout this whole conflict. And the value of the European Broadcasting Union has been that all of our other members have been very active in supporting them to do that. So, for instance, on a technological side, 
We've had engineers rummaging through basements across Europe in broadcasting headquarters trying to find old-style equipment. We are using every... If there are, public service broadcasting has been going for 100 years, right? We are using the technology of the last 100 years to keep UAPBC on air. You know, we're using shortwave, medium wave, FM, digital. We're using Starlink satellite dishes. We're using traditional satellite Everything is being deployed, and that has, has been thanks to the EBU members who've come in to support our Ukrainian member. And that solidarity is so crucial. As we heard from the Golden Pen of Freedom Award yesterday, the slogan for the Polish newspaper that was awarded the award is, there is no freedom without solidarity. And, and that's something that the European Broadcasting Union can certainly get behind. The importance of freedom of the oppressed. The situation in Ukraine is incredibly difficult, not just for the Ukrainian broadcasters there, but the international broadcasters also trying to cover it. There are issues with accreditation, with getting access to certain areas to be able to report what is going on on the ground. And these challenges are something that we work with in many places around the world, but are something that we should always speak out about and try to challenge, because without the freedom to report, information is not as it should be. Thank you very much, Liz. And good to know that she works at the Eurovision Song Contest. As you might know, I'm a big fan of the contest and I go there to report from Monaco every year. Next year I'll be there in Liverpool for sure. And now to Zimbabwe. Faith Zaba, editor of Zimbabwe Independent, a business weekly newspaper in Zimbabwe, is a particularly inspiring woman in journalism and our final interview on this week's show. Sophie started asking Faith how the publication characterizes itself. Zimbabwe Independent has been in existence for 26 years now. We are a business paper, but our focus is a lot on investigative reporting. So it's more of an in-depth kind of reporting. So our clientele, we are looking at business people, business leaders. We are looking at investors. We are looking at students. And we are looking even just generally people. We've got a wide following because they love the in-depth analysis that we do. So we're not like the usual, because in Zimbabwe we've got quite a number of daily papers. So we go deeper on issues. So you find that on Fridays, people are looking forward to reading the Zimin on Friday so that they get the other side or they get an in-depth analysis of whatever would have been happening during the week. So you're talking about going in-depth into things and really investigating stories. What is the context like in Zimbabwe doing that? What kind of challenges do you face? So in Zim, you know, before there wasn't much of investigative kind of reporting. We're actually moving more towards that now. One of the biggest challenges that we face is the issue of funding. Because if you look at investigative, it costs more and the journalists need more time to cover. And with what happened with COVID, you see a lot of organizations now, they are downscaling. There's a lot of talk about a retrenchment. So... You still want to provide the in-depth, but you've got all those issues coming in. Now we are trying to strike a balance and see how we can then move forward. So the other way that we've done, we've done a lot of collaborations with not Zimbabwean media organizations, but we've looked for organizations that deal with investigative reporting and then collaborated with them. Because there are certain things 
Okay, if you look at Zim, if you look at South Africa and Zim, totally different environment. With Zim, if you're doing an investigative, if you go to the DID's office, it's all paper, it's not computerized, you know. Unlike if you're an essay, you can just be on your laptop, search whatever you want and you get, even in terms of trying to track, we've got a lot of companies coming in and we've got a lot of businesses which are not registered in Zimbabwe. So then we collaborate with foreign media organizations or organizations that deal with investigative reporting. And how far afield are those organizations that you're collaborating with? Yeah, we did one with, say, European organization. So we have done with them. Then we have done with regionally. We've got Botswana, then South Africa. And then at one time, even with the Panama guys. Yeah, we did something with them. So, yeah. It's interesting because... We're speaking from this conference here and I've heard a lot of people talking about collaboration when, when actually maybe people start out thinking that journalism is, is just sort of pure competitive. Do you think that's something that your publication really kind of benefits from? Yeah, it, we do, we do. Um, like now, we're working a lot with the standard in Kenya. We've got a deal. Uh, remember during election time? We're getting uh, stories from them. We are also going into an election next year. So, yeah. And, and through organizations like WIN, Women in News, uh, we have had, is it like meetings where we've had journalists from different parts of Africa. So sometimes when I, there's a story that I'm working on, let's say it, it involves uh, a Tanzanian uh, aspect, or we're trying to get something from Tanzania. We've always called and, and asked, you know, we're looking for this. Can you get it for us? And no, it does help. No collaboration. I mean, like where we are now, we are talking about financial issues. If you, where we can collaborate, why not? Because we both benefit anyway. So when we publish it in Zim, we also publish in, in that country. While we've been here in Zaragoza, you've been awarded an award for being a female editor and all of your work, you know, not just in Zimbabwe, but beyond. And I wonder, maybe since you've been working, how do you think women-led journalism has changed in Zimbabwe? Are there still challenges? What have you seen happening? <laughs> there are challenges. There are challenges. You know, sometimes I've always said there were many times when I, I could have quit. Many times that I almost quit, you know, because you are working in an environment which is so male-dominated. It's literally a boys' club. And you find that with the guys, they cover up for each other. You just make one mistake, it's blown out of proportion. So you, you see a lot of young female journalists now not wanting to go into... into they love... You know, I've had sessions where I speak to them. They love journalism, but they see what's happening. They see there's no growth amongst women. I mean, look at me. I had to be promoted at 47, <laughs> you know, at 47. And I'm not talking about, I'm telling you, I can, I can tell you from the time I started journalism, I can say I was one of the top, but it took me this long to be recognized, you know, to be accepted, no, not recognized, to be accepted. There's obviously so many issues with funding, things like printing costs, so much more, and data um, and disinformation, all of those things. Do you have hope for the newsroom and the future of the newsroom and, and how do you think about that? I, I have hope. I think we need to transform. We need to move with the times. I know people, when they look at us, the older, 
we are they look at us as being the rigid ones we want to hold on to let's say print but then where we are now we need a mindset shift we need to look at what is it that we need to do for us to survive these are the conversation we should be having yes we are facing challenges in terms of finances especially for even worse for a country like zimbabwe where already it's got its own microeconomic issues eh? so we have to be um, creative the editors before they would never organize things like conferences we are doing that now uh, we actually organized our first investor forum last month and we even invited the president who was our uh, keynote speaker which was a shock to everybody because imagine a president coming to an independent papers event and I remember even the public media guys they were in denial <laughs> they were saying he wasn't coming but we, we put our thing across and said no this is what this is the direction we want to take because we are we are about creating platforms for debate so this is just one of them so we are going to be doing a lot of such so we have the paper then we're going to have platforms where we bring in different people and then we engage and yeah so we are, we are doing trying to do things differently. Thank you, Faith and Sophie, for all the reports from the World News Media Congress. That's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor, Adam Heaton. And if you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpandmonaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. Meanwhile, please subscribe on monaco.com, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Before we go, a little song for you. Patrick Cowley, Technological World. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me.